So the quarantine has given me and it's probably given you guys the opportunity to do things that you didn't do as regularly or routinely pre-quarantine, like cleaning your room. My room, I don't know about yours, Brendan, but my room is absolutely sparkling clean right now and my closet. I've cleaned them like two times over the last four or five days. Well, thanks for bragging. I'm <laughs> sitting in my own filth right now. I have not cleaned once in the last four or five days. Okay, well, I guess I just shouldn't uh, speak for everybody, but yeah, just... speak for yourself. For, for per, from personal experience, cleaning my room something I've been able to do more routinely. Cooking from home, I can't personally cook, but luckily my girlfriend can. Same, same boat there. <laughs> but yeah, but, but something else that I've been able to do more routinely is manscaping. Because I've had, mm-hmm. I have the time every day. Uh, I have the resources now, and this is the perfect time to get on board with Manscaped during the quarantine. They sent us an awesome package a few weeks ago that came with, of course, the lawn po- the lawnmower 3.0, uh, their uh, latest tool from Manscaped. Also, an awesome traveling case, even a T-shirt, and I could just say. I don't know if you can speak to it, Brendan. Actually, I'm pretty sure you can, but it's a great product, a state-of-the-art tool as well. This isn't some crappy razor that they dressed up with a cool name and just marketed the hell out of it. This is like a really good tool to use. Yeah, I, I'm not even kidding. I used it earlier today. I, I've never really had like a great trimmer situation in that regard, and to have something fully dedicated to just manscaping – it's kind of insane what a life changer it is, and you can. it's got an LED light, so you can see wherever you're aiming. It's got that razor guard. It's next to impossible to nick yourself. And then, obviously, they got the ball deodorant and the ball toner as well, so you're not just feeling nice. You're smelling nice. My room may be disgusting, but my man area is fresh, Harrison. Well, that's what really counts in the Indeed. end, right? Especially during a quarantine. I would recommend the Perfect Package 3.0 kit. Comes with the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0, ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine. Some of these liquid tools include the Crop Preserver, which is the anti chafing deodorant for your balls, the Crop Reviver, the spray on ball toner, and Refresher, made to give you a little pep in your step. And like I was talking about earlier, that perfect package that we got also comes with the travel bag, which you guys can get as well disposable shaving mats it's really got everything you need and you guys can get 20 percent off with free shipping when you use the code dnvr20 at manscape.com so this is the perfect time to get on board with manscape check them out today manscape.com What's going on, guys? Welcome into the DMVR Nuggets podcast. Harris Wind and Brendan Vote here, Monday edition of the program. How's it going, man? I'm all right, dude. I'm, I'm surprisingly, I'm holding up just fine during this, this self-quarantine so far. Yeah, I'm holding up all right, too. And what we're going to get to on today's show is, of course, Game 5, Nuggets, Hornets, the closeout game that we watched on Friday and that's something that's helped me and I think helped all of us get through this quarantine a little bit. No kidding. No is kidding, DNVR Watches, uh, the series we're doing 
uh, where we're pretty much watching a past sporting event, Nuggets, Avs games, of course, Love is Blind, of course. I know a lot of you guys are on board with that now. And just over the weekend, we watched uh, the Buffs beating Nebraska, the 62-36 game from a while back. And I had then not a, seen uh, that. I hadn't seen that before, Harrison, that game. I always see the shirt, and so, like, that final score that game is referenced all the time. What an ass-kicking, dude, right out of the gate. It was incredible. I still remember exactly where I was when that game happened, and obviously I was super young then, but I was, like, on a road trip with my parents in Phoenix. I think we were going out to L.A. for or Southern California for vacation. We stopped over in Phoenix, I think, for a day. I was at a hotel in Phoenix watching that game. It it's, the, incredible. it's funny how those memories stick out. I have one of um, my mom and I are watching the U.S. women's soccer team in the World Cup in the semifinals against Brazil when the U.S. won on the last minute from that Wombach header. Oh, I don't yeah. know why, but I do have some random hotel sports memories. I guess a lot of sports fans have that. Yeah, so that was an unbelievable game. And so we watched that one this weekend, and then we just watched a uh, Broncos game on uh, Sunday here, football Sunday. That's what's been cool about it, at least this weekend. With the amount of people that have been tweeting along with the DNVR Watches hashtag, you can just filter on Twitter from that hashtag. And it's almost been like a college football Saturday, college football Sunday. Sure. It's just really, I think, helped us get through this a little bit easier. Yeah, the Buffs absolutely took over the feed. And then, you know, obviously today we did the Broncos-Colts game from 1983. You could argue really the birth of the legend of John Elway. Super fun game. And it's just really cool for me. Obviously, I manage a lot of the social accounts to click on that hashtag and see it popping off each day. Like, it's one thing for us to have this idea, to try it and see how it works, but it doesn't unless everyone jumps on, and so far they are. So, I, I it's weird adjusting to, like, watching TV at a scheduled time again, but DNVR Watches is, is keeping me sane during these crazy times. Yeah, so, we'll, I, I believe we're powering through the uh, rest of the 2009 Western Conference playoffs beginning this next coming week, Right. I think so. Yeah, I got to yeah. check with the boss, but I think that's the plan. Yeah, so let's talk about game five here. Nuggets, Hornets, of course, the closeout game of the series. Denver ended up winning the series 4-1. 102-86 was the final score. So we'll talk about this game, and then we'll also kind of weave in some quotes and some parts of the podcast that Adam did with George Carl that I dropped on Friday which kind of stuck out and had a lot to do with this game and this series. So we'll talk about that as well. But I guess my first question, Brendan, for you is the sense around this game, the Nuggets were coming home. They had all the momentum after that, just drubbing in game four in New Orleans. This one seemed like the writing was on the wall mm. really before the game. And for you, somebody who hadn't watched this series before, is that kind of what it seemed watching it back here over the last couple weeks? Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because they said it on the broadcast. I think Byron Scott said it in between quarters. But that first quarter in Game 5 was arguably the best the Hornets had played to start any game in the series. And they were with, you know, it was a one-point game, I believe, you know, exchanging leads all the way to halftime. And yet, like you said, to your point, it did not look or feel like... The Hornets were ever going to win that game. The Nuggets were never concerned. The crowd was just kind of waiting to get into it. So the Hornets played well, but it, it just felt like a dead man walking type of situation. It totally did. And I, I like 
with the point you brought up there because the Pelicans were up 25-18 in the first. And Denver came out like they were almost sleepwalking, super nonchalant on both ends of the floor. And then I thought there was one play that changed the entire momentum, the entire tone and feel of the game. Yeah, go ahead. Is it the Birdman block at 120? It was. Love it. Chris or Birdman blocks Chris Paul at the rim with 120 to go in the first quarter. And I think Denver scored the next six points. And the funny thing is that it was still a really close game throughout the first half. I believe it was tied 49-49 at the break. But it was just the fact that that one block changed just the entire tone of that first half. It kind of woke me up watching it. Like you said, the first X minutes, you know, 95% of that quarter, just going through the motions a little bit, crowd wasn't really into it. It was that moment where people woke up, people got on their feet. Nuggets had just scored a bucket, so 2-0 run. He gets that block, you're right. They go six straight points from there, finish the quarter on an 8-2 run. So they don't go on to, like, create a big lead from that play. But that was the moment where the Nuggets kind of woke up and the crowd remembered, that's right, this is an elimination game. The Birdman phenomenon was just so ridiculous at the time. Yeah, I loved it too. I love watching it back. And a really cool part about it, the announcers were into it too. Because Mm -hmm. as Birdman walked to the table to check in, the crowd stood up. Everybody started flapping their wings. And the announcers are like, oh, here comes Birdman walking to the table. The crowd can sense it. They see him coming. And (laughs) he, he like, I really think he had a great series here. Absolutely. And it it was kind of eye-opening for me because I thought he, you know, was obviously an impact defender. But... He had much bigger of an impact in this series than I remembered. Absolutely. He's kind of like center J.R. Smith. You know what I mean? The way he kind of wakes the crowd up and more than just a shot blocker. But at the same time, you almost kind of forget because it's been so long since we had a guy that hunted out those kind of like big impact momentum swinging plays on defense. But for however many errant jumps on on pump fakes or, or whatever, or, or poor defensive rotations he may make because he's so eager to get a block. Plays like that, as you said earlier, it literally changed the course of this game in a way that maybe a dunk can on offense or whatever, particularly so when it comes from a character like Birdman. And so that wasn't just a gimmick for this team. It was a real element to to what they did well and some of the runs they went on when it mattered most. And he was such a deterrent at the rim And in a few minutes, I want to get into just the overall impact that Dante Jones had on Chris Paul in this series. Uh, But Chris Paul was kind of spooked whenever he would get into the rim and Birdman was there. He was such a deterrent at the rim. Supposedly, Chris Paul was hurting a little bit, right, in that game. I mean, who is it at that point in the season? But it did look like between what you mentioned in Birdman's presence and the injury that like he was really he was deferring open lanes to the basket at times. Mm-hmm. So how this game kind of went, and I mentioned it was tied 49-49 at the break. Carmelo Anthony absolutely was on fire in the third quarter, and that was really the difference. He took over in the third. He had 13 in the period, 13 of Denver's 31 in the quarter. I believe all from two-point range. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anything was from three. And this stretch was just vintage mellow. And his footwork, his body control, I thought was so impressive. He was so gifted as a natural scorer back then. This was his best stretch in the series, I thought. And, you know, this was like the mellow that 
Nug- people who were Nuggets fans like I was at the time growing up watching this team, these are the stretches that we really remember when, when we think back about him and the run he had in Denver. So it was the first time in this series where I really felt like I was watching that guy, you know, yeah. and not just a very talented guy, but Carmelo Anthony, the guy everyone talks about in both Denver and New York. And the thing about when he gets going Look, Melo takes some, I think, poor shots, some inefficient shots, but when he's hot, as we saw in this game, the thing about a scorer like that is there are no, are no poor shots for him. Uh, he was feeling it, and, and the, the rim looked so large, and it's funny, man, like, this, the modern game is all about spacing, and there just wasn't a ton in this in this era, and, like, Melo's ability to, to get a shot off with the tightest window of space um, and how confident he was from the long mid-range... You really just saw the elements of like an all-time great scorer. Maybe not basketball player, but scorer, no doubt. Oh, for sure. Yeah, he didn't need spacing. No. He, he no. didn't need uh, everybody to like clear aside the floor for him, even though that's what the Nuggets did. And it's so funny watching the gravity that he had when he had the ball in his hands on the right or the left wing. What would happen is the Nuggets would feed him the ball kind of, you know, in the mid-post area or – from 15, 8, 16, 17 feet away from the basket on one of the wings, New Orleans would pretty much zone up its help side defender. So they would have the guy on the ball, if that was James Posey, Stoyakovich, Rasul Butler. Everybody else, their other four players would kind of just form a like a 2-2 zone yep. over, the, over the rest of the court because that's how big of a threat he was. But yeah, Mel was unbelievable in this game. Finished with 34 points. Just 13 and 25 from the field, so super efficient. So, yeah, this was the mellow that we came to see, I guess. And so this was his first time advancing out of the first round, correct? Correct. So you can see, you could see it on his face. You know, George Carl and Mark Fine talked about it in between the third and the fourth quarter. You know, Fine said, Mello looks like a guy who wants to get out of the first round. <laughs> I think Carl said, I think he's very proud of the way he's playing right now. Um, and, and that's like a best player on a two seed. And as we touched about the last time we all got together and talked about this series, this was not a lucked into or fell backwards into a two seed Nuggets team. They looked in that first round like a team that was never going to lose that series. And in game five, Melo looked like a player that was never going to let his team lose. Oh, for sure. And uh, George Carl talked about that a little on the podcast that he was on on Friday with us. He said that obviously the Nuggets and Mel had lost in the first round five straight times heading into the series in 2009. But he said, we lost in the first round to three teams who went to the NBA Finals and two teams who won the championship. Right. So I, I think that's something important to remember about those teams leading up to 2009. Yeah, they had disappointed by losing in the first round a lot, but they had lost to some good teams. You know, there were some disappointing games, like that Clippers loss was super disappointing. When when Denver fell to a Clippers team, that was just really not that good. But they had also lost some really good teams, so right, I, I thought right. that was interesting. Including this year. And, and I think Carmelo went on an Instagram story, live story thing with Dwayne Wade the other day, mm-hmm. and they talked about that series and how Melo felt like they really – dropped the ball, so to speak, or threw it away in the Western Conference Finals because they believed they were good enough to not just beat but run through Orlando. And I think he said sweep them. We would have swept them. And and I don't like to do that. You know, we would have stuff. This is Melo's words. But they really were confident. They wanted Orlando. Uh, and, and I think George Carl quote tweeted it 
from his Twitter account and said, yeah, it's really great to hear this. I couldn't agree more. And so, you know, I think Melo had his frustrations with, or I'm sorry, Carl had his frustrations with this group of players, Melo certainly among them. But to hear him talk about it now, it's like, no, Carl looked at this guy as a guy who was capable of taking his team to a championship and believed he was good enough, whether they did or did not get there. Oh, sure. And Melo also had a comment on Instagram that he said he would have won maybe two or three rings if drafted by the Detroit Pistons. I know, I or I guess I sense that Nuggets fans and uh, some people around the team were kind of put off by that quote. But it's a weird quote. I, I think he's 100% right. He definitely would have had a ring or two if he was drafted by the Pistons. Of course, Detroit picked Darko Milicic in that draft and passed on Mel, allowing him to go to Denver. But, I mean, that Pistons team, like, ran through the Eastern Conference yeah. for, for several seasons. If you slide Mel in there, he definitely would have had a, a ring or two. So I thought he was speaking facts on that. He might be speaking facts, but again, like, if you're a Nuggets fan, all you're hearing is, yeah, well, you were here, we drafted you, you had a chance to get it done, you fumbled it, and then you left. So yeah. that may all be true, but we don't want to hear it. Yeah. Hey, if you guys are looking for takeout options during this time that we find ourselves in, <laughs> I want to point you in the direction of the Breck Brew Farmhouse. Yes. Breck Brew has so, been a partner of ours for a while now, and we're asking you guys to support them in this time if you're looking for takeout options, if you're looking to change it up from the home cooking that you guys have been doing here as of late. They've got a special curbside pickup menu for the Breck Brew Farmhouse located in Littleton. Tons of awesome options that you guys can get. Some of my personal favorites, the house smoked chicken wings, the Power Bowl, which has kale, arugula, quinoa, mm. pistachios. Just an awesome combination of stuff there. The chicken, bacon, and ranch mac and cheese. I know it sounds a little weird, but it's killer. So Breck is actually offering $5 off your food and beverage purchase when you use this code. You can also pick up beer there, of course. I mean, it's the Breck Brew headquarters for crying out loud. 303-803-1380. I think they expanded their delivery radius as well. So make sure to call those guys up. Order from the Breck Brew Farmhouse if you're looking for some pickup options for lunch or dinner. The food's really good. You guys know the beer is really good, so... Uh, we're asking you guys to help them out in this time if you want. Also, Mile High Green Cross, you guys can still sign up for their loyalty program and receive 20% off of your entire purchase once per month. Conveniently located at 9th and Broadway. Of course, they are open through this time. Uh, marijuana dispensaries as well as alcohol, store, uh, alcohol uh, stores, liquor stores. Are, have been deemed essential businesses, so I believe they're still open. You can get in and out in just nine minutes, although it might be a little more crowded uh, in the times that we're in. Yeah, I don't, they're not guaranteeing the nine minutes right now. <laughs> yeah, nine minutes now is, you know, under normal circumstances. <laughs> the times we're in. <laughs> Again, sign up for their loyalty program and receive 20% off your entire purchase once per month. That offer extends to current members. All right, back here on the DMVR Nuggets podcast. We are, of course, presented by Legal Pete's, home of the stir. And to go on, and we're talking about Game 5 here on today's show. Nuggets closed out the series. We watched Game 5 
on Friday. Hashtag DNVR watches. I believe we're continuing the playoff run this week because it seemed like a lot of you guys really dug it. The story of this series, Brendan, was Chauncey Billups and how he kind of took hold of this team and really changed the entire tone and tenor around the Nuggets because they had come into this series obviously losing five straight times in the first round. But this was a different team with Chauncey Billups at the helm. And of course, two games into this season, the 2009 season, Denver traded Allen Iverson for Chauncey Billups. And Billups did not have a great game five, 13 points, 11 assists, three of nine from the field. All three of his field goals were threes. But his blueprints, his fingerprints, however you want to call it, they were all over this series. And that was just kind of my biggest takeaway from this entire series. This was the Chauncey Billups series. Melo had a great game five, but Chauncey was by far and away Denver's MVP in this series. Couldn't agree more. That was my big takeaway through the first four games. Was expecting to see vintage Carmelo. Ended up seeing um, maybe an underappreciated stretch of Chauncey Billups' career. I think obviously everyone who's not in Denver would go straight to the 2004 Finals MVP. Um, But this was some high, high high-level basketball. He was the best player in the series, in a series that featured a younger, faster Chris Paul and the uber-talented Carmelo. So definitely the big takeaway. And it's crazy to think that they could have just rocked with Allen Iverson in that season. Um, but I guess if you want to call it a risk to go with the older Chauncey, with the older version of Chauncey, it paid off. Yeah, I think a lot of people did look at it as a slight risk at the time, but it was obviously a great move from the Nuggets' perspective. And look, if they had Allen Iverson, they probably win this first round series, right? Right, probably still. I would think so. I don't know if they beat Dallas. Uh, they did beat Dallas four one as well. Uh, but like Chauncey just made this team so much more well-rounded. And th- the sense I got watching this series back, he had a calmness to his presence on the court that was a little bit akin to the calmness that Nikola Jokic brings. Mm. And um, I-, I was thinking about this today, but Michael Porter Jr. had this quote in January when he was talking about what it's been like to play with Jokic on the floor. And at the time, those two had played, I think, about 150 minutes together. So getting really into that significant minutes played territory. And Porter seemed like he had some really nice chemistry with Jokic. Those two were playing really well off of one another. And he had this quote that said pretty much when he was on the floor with Jokic, there was just this calmness. And Jokic just brought this calmness to the court whenever he was out there. And I feel like that was the same with Chauncey. Denver was always just in such control with him. You always got the sense that they knew what they wanted to do. Uh, They were never, like, hectic or out of sorts. And if they were, Billups put them in line really quickly. But he just had this overall calmness to his play that seemed like really rubbed off on everyone else. Yeah, we've heard, like you said, Porter talk about that with Jokic. To a much lesser extent, we've heard some of the young Nuggets describe Paul Millsap that way. I think defensively late in games, um, when you're a younger guy, no matter how talented you are, I think it's pretty clear that there is a very real calming effect to playing with um, not just a veteran guy, but someone who who's so so talented. Like Billups and Jokic have that that old journeyman poise, but also the uber talent to go with it. 
Um, and, and it's so different when it's a ball handler. I mean, I know Jokic, so much goes through him. His usage rate is so high. But it's just different when it's your lead guard bringing the ball up, the, up and down the floor each time who's a guy who you can trust to make the right choice nine out of ten times. Uh, yeah, I've got to think that nobody was happier to bring Chauncey Billups on board than George Carl was. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I was I wanted Adam to ask because you had mentioned the potential risk of the deal last podcast. I wanted Adam to ask George Carl what he thought of, of trading for Chauncey, and um, we did get that quote after all. It's out there on a podcast teaser on the DNVR Nuggets feed. But when they traded for Chauncey, they knew within two weeks that they were going to be good, like a new level of good. Uh, and, and I just think that just speaks to, to the type of player Billups was. Definitely. And George Carl talked about that, like you said. He said, quote, Chauncey's presence was unifying. It was magnifying. It was real. and Real. I like that. Yeah. I mean, that's like kind of vague, but we all know exactly what he means, right? Right. Right. Of course. <laughs> And yeah, to go on with that quote you were talking about, where he said that they knew they were going to be good two weeks into the two weeks after the trade, he said everybody, not only the coaches, the locker room, everybody, the equipment manager, the strength coach, everybody. Chauncey walked into that room, and his presence, like I said, it was unifying, magnifying, and real. Carl said within a week, Chauncey knew the plays and defensive assignments. And another really interesting quote, I thought, George Carl said. Taking the tug of war between AI and Mello offensively out of our out of our locker room, hmm. I think that lifted people up. See, that's interesting because the ball is still in Billups' hands a lot, you know, and Billups will score and Billups will shoot, but di- different style of playing, right? Yeah, I- yeah, totally, totally, and um, I think that's probably the case for a lot of teams. You know, you know, when you got two guys who have been number one options on their team before, like Allen Iverson has been throughout his career, like Carmelo Anthony was throughout his career, and you put those guys together, that's just going to create some natural tension. I mean, those two players were really good, but to really get to the Nuggets' peak, they needed more of a pecking order, and and that's what Chauncey brought. What was late-phase Denver career Iverson like? I don't have vivid memories of that. I only saw so many games. Was he... Did he adapt his game at all, or, or was he just kind of an older version of Mel, of AI that had lost a step? You know, it's tough for me to remember super sure. specifically offhand. Sure, but you know, he he was obviously not close to to prime AI. In two thousand nine, he averaged eighteen point seven points though in those three games with Denver, and then this. So he did not get off to a great start in those first three games. But 2007-2008, he was still a really effective scorer. 26.5 points per game, 46% from the field, and uh, 34.5% from three. So he was still an amazing scorer. Had had lost a little bit of a step, but still was a great scorer. And I don't think he really changed his game up too much. From what I remember, it was kind of your turn, my turn type deal. Right. And so when you already have that uber-talented scorer and a younger version in Melo, I mean, to swap for a guy like Chauncey, who's less concerned with his shot and more concerned with the right shot no matter who's taking it, I mean, that can be the kind of move that that takes you from first, second round to to championship contention. Mm -hmm. And just Chauncey's mental toughness and and mental strength, and this kind of just goes back to the calmness 
that he brought to the floor. George Carl said, quote, there were very few players who I coached that were mentally that were as mentally tough as Chauncey Billups was. And um, he kind of exuded that throughout the series. And I thought the entire Nuggets team exuded that. They were so confident in this series. From yeah. game game one, even before they had a 1-0 lead, they were so confident, I thought. Even after dropping that game in New Orleans, even after that that great start in game five for New Orleans, not yeah. for a second did Denver look concerned. Yeah, so I thought the story of this series was really just Chauncey Billups enforcing his will, knowing when Denver needed him to take control of games, knowing when to defer to Mello when he really had it going. He did all those things uh, so well. So uh, there are a few more things I want to get to this game, specifically about Kenyon Martin's impact in this game Mm -hmm. in the series and uh, J.R. Smith as well because I've got some interesting notes on him. First, though, Strava Craft Coffee. We're obviously big proponents of Strava here on the podcast. They've been a partner of ours for a long time, going back into the pre-DNVR days. So, again, like we're asking you guys to do with Breck Brewing, if you're looking to make some coffee at home, if you got a Keurig, hit up Strava Craft Coffee. Help support one of our partners. You guys can get 20% off when you use the code DNVR20 online. Of course, Strava Craft Coffee is packed with CBD, which is non-psychoactive. It can keep you a little even keel in the stressful times that we're currently in. Remember, purchase online for 20% off using the code DNVR20. Back here on the DMVR Nuggets podcast, Harrison Wynn and Brendan Vote. We are presented, of course, by the good folks over at Illegal Pete's. Brendan, Kenyon Martin in this series, I thought was Denver's third most valuable player. Hmm. Where do you think he ranked on a MVP power rankings of this series for Denver? Yeah, I think you have him right at third. It really can't be overstated that a lot of what New Orleans wanted to do offensively outside of what Chris Paul could manufacture was going to David West, either as a jump shooter or down in the post. And to have a exceptionally well-suited guy to guard him in Kenyon Martin was a massive, massive factor in this series. To me, it was kind of the aspect of that se- of this series in which New Orleans had no chance, right? Like they had their talented players, but if their second best scoring option is a matchup that Denver will take, you know, I mean, that goes such a long way. And so I thought the impact that Martin had uh, was, was hard to, hard to quantify, but, but pretty obvious. Yeah. That's a great point because David West was an all-star this season. He averaged we, something like 24 points a game. New Orleans really ran their offense through David West. I felt like, and yeah. that's what they wanted to do in this series. Chris Paul was great this season, although he did not have a great series, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, but the Hornets offense ran through David West and with how strong Kmart was defensively this series and D West had nice game in game five, yep, 24 and nine uh, Kmart had a really strong offensive game too, a 15.79 field goals in game five, but he set the tone defensively. I thought, and, and he was the Paul Millsap of this 2009 team, just in terms of, his team defense, yep. and uh, just setting the tone for Denver on that end of the floor. Maybe the Paul Millsap also in terms of taking a lot of the blame 
whenever mm-hmm. Denver struggled throughout the regular season in this one and at times in the playoffs, which, which we'll see over the next couple of rounds. Uh, but, man, he was so valuable. I, I think he was Denver's third most valuable player here. Set the tone for a very physical defensive series for the Nuggets. Not just Mark, but all the Nuggets. And, you know, there was a lot of talk from the broadcast crew about how the Hornets are banged up, but that progressed throughout the series. You know, guys like Birdman Martin, who will gladly put you on your ass in, in an effort to make a good defensive play. And, you know, Dante Jones getting all in Chris Paul's grill. Like, these these guys were not ready for Denver physically. And I think Martin sets the tone for all of that. Yeah, he was great. And another guy who was great in this game, and looking back on it, had a great series, J.R. Smith. Dude, I'm glad you brought that up. There was so much commentary about his absurd and irresponsible shooting. And we know J.R. Smith's reputation. Of course, coming from the future, we know he ultimately forgets the score in one of the most impressive basketball games ever played by LeBron James. He's a bonehead, but for all of that, he was two. He made 2.8 out of 6.6 three-point attempts per game. That's good for 42%. That's a very, very, very good clip, especially at this stage of the game. He had a massive impact on this series. He was so good, and two to three different times from this series where you could pinpoint in a game where the Nuggets really pulled away and separated, it was his spark off the bench that I thought was the catalyst for that. Yeah, he averaged 16 points a game in this series off the bench. Which is a huge number. Huge number. For a bench player in 2009. And yeah, third most on the team. Third most points per game on the team behind Mello with uh, 24 points per game and Chauncey with 22.5. So he was great in this game again. 20 points, 7 to 12 from the field, 5 of 8 from 3. And I thought George Carl had a lot of interesting stuff that he said on that podcast that we did with him. But. Maybe no quote was more interesting than what he had to say about JR. Um, because he said this, uh, a similar thing about Melo. George said, quote, trying to get Melo to commit to being a total player. I think Chauncey helped us get him in that direction. But I never think we got him in that room where he was going to be in that room all the time. I think he's talking about just getting Melo to buy in fully on the defensive end and being a team player. George Carl says, so I put a little bit of the blame on my ability to bring out the best in Mello. And Carl goes on to say, quote, did I get the most out of JR, this talented kid, instead of playing him as his bench player for 20 minutes, should I have been trying to get him to play as a starter for 30 minutes? And my stubbornness of him being a good and bad player, making great plays and then making stupid plays, maybe I overreacted to it. I thought that was a fascinating Fascinating. I think that is the, you know, if you look at early JR, you look at these years, that is the JR thing. Like, I brought up the the commentary and the disconnect between how well he was actually shooting because that's always been the story with him. Every time he does anything, we go, oh, JR, like, almost as if it's a, we're having a laugh. But when JR's on, he is a high-impact player and a guy who was a multi-tool player. And so... I, yeah, that line of reflection is fascinating because is JR the best version of himself if you just let him be him 20 plus minutes off the bench where he can have less of a detrimental effect on your starting offense? Or was there a far more talented, far more complete player that Carl and all of his coaches could have gotten more out of? And like that is the big JR question to me. Mm-hmm. And JR, uh, he could do stuff in 2009 that not a lot of guards could do. Oh, yeah. 
just in terms of his one-on-one scoring ability, how just beautiful of a jump shot he had, how he could get to the rim. So athletic. So So athletic. athletic. So athletic. And you just wonder what could have been if he could have just been playable defensively. Like, like he played a lot in this series. 24 minutes in game one, 27 in game two, 25 minutes in game three, 21 minutes in game four, 28 minutes in game five. He actually played more than I thought he would based on how many just egregious defensive mistakes he made. But you got to think George Carl had him out there like he did because, like we saw, he could just change the game with one three, similar to how Birdman could change the game with one block. And I just thought, like, looking back on the type of player he was, he he had, like, top 10 player in the league talent. Talent. No, there's no doubt about it. talent. Yeah. Yeah, I think everyone likes to to jump to Michael Beasley as the as the sort of poster boy for someone who didn't live up to their talent, but I think JR was was just as good or should have been just as good. And when he was on the floor with primarily second unit guys, I mean the ball was in his hands, right? For for however little Carl trusted JR in the grand scheme of things, he understood that a good good minutes from JR in the third quarter if the Nuggets were playing well, that meant game over. And and so I there, the that kind of he used the term tug of war between AI and and Mello. That kind of tug, that conflict internally for Carl with Jr. Maybe among the more interesting things to re-examine in hindsight. Mm-hmm. And yeah, going back to that quote that George Carl had about Jr. and kind of just talking about if he should have let Jr. play through his mistakes a little more. I can imagine Michael Malone saying that same thing about Michael Porter Jr. 15 years from now. Can't you? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, Just talking about this last season, of course. Who knows what happens in the future? No, for sure. The only thing that, like, again, what's so encouraging about MPJ is he has skill sets that allow him to be valuable, like, in the spaces in between, right? Where he's either great or bad. Like, he can cut. He's long enough to make an impact on defense. Like, you can see MPJ having positive impacts on a game without necessarily needing the ball in his hands a ton and, and, and taking crazy shots and all that. But, like, there's a darker version of the MPJ timeline where we're kind of talking about him in a very similar way. Yeah, like, MPJ makes defensive mistakes as egregious defensive mistakes as J.R. Smith made For in this sure. series, you know? For, in a way that makes you think, like, and, and hopefully not, but maybe... Like, he could still be making the same mistakes in 10 years, you know? Mm -hmm. Hopefully not, but there is that timeline for sure. Another big takeaway from this game in this series, obviously, talk about playing your role, and that's something that I feel like role players, they were more specialized back in 2009. Definitely. There's still some specialists currently in the NBA, like Kyle Korver, Duncan Robinson, mostly just knock down three-point shooters, but there were a lot of defensive specialists uh, back in 2009. Dante Jones was the top of his class in that department. He was so good on Chris Paul throughout this series. Here's some numbers from Chris Paul. So in this series, Chris Paul averaged 16.6 points per game. He averaged 23 points per game during the regular season, around the same number of assists, But Chris Paul also only shot 41% from the floor in this series and 31% from three. On the season, in 2009, Chris Paul shot 50% from the floor and 36% from three. Also, Chris Paul's turnover percentage in this series, 
22.6% on the season in 2009, 13.5%. So Dante Jones like took Chris Paul out of this series. Such an impressive performance. He was incredible. Stuck to him like a shadow in a way that obviously reminds you of Craig on Lillard or Craig on Westbrook. Sure. And yeah, we've talked about the Billibson patch, that added layer of when Melo's going, the JR3s. But yeah, I mean, what what could be a bigger impact than having a guy who is effectively shutting down far and away the most talented player on the other team? And Chris Paul, there were spurts of effectiveness, and I think we always saw the control he had over the game. But for the most part, it was a futile effort for one of the more talented guards we've ever seen. And he did not have a lot of options to turn to, but... Dante Jones gets all the credit upon rewatch. It was a phenomenal defensive effort. Yeah, and like you said earlier, it seemed like Chris Paul was battling through some injuries. uh, But still, uh, he was just not effective at all in this series. Uh, Just some other random notes I had here. The We Want Dallas chants in the fourth were awesome. Awesome, dude. (laughs) And uh, I remember, of course, we'll get to this when we do the Dallas series, but... At the end of the Dallas series, Game 5, when the Nuggets close out the Mavs 4-1, the Beat LA and the We Want LA chants heading out of Pepsi Center were awesome as well. So wait for those. But the crowd was really good in this series, I thought. It's like a next next stage in evolution for this Nuggets team that I hope I'm still here for is when they go from, hey, the Nuggets are the two seed to, hey, pencil the Nuggets in for a win in round one probably in round two. I want the crowd looking forward to the conference finals, looking forward to the finals, bigger and better things. That playoff run was so cool, but it felt almost like tentative and apologetic. You know, like, ah, sorry, we're the two seed. This Nuggets team in 09 was not sorry about anything and was never going to lose. And the crowd was in tune with that. So that's something I hope this current team gets to eventually. Yeah, and both teams, I thought, had a great deal of pressure on their shoulders to get past the first round. Absolutely. Obviously, the 2009 team, because they had come up short in the first round so many times. And this latest playoff run last year, because, look, the Nuggets were the two seed. They they were expected to beat that San Antonio team, and uh, they did. They came through on both occasions. Um, Let's see. Oh, yeah. Birdman was the first ever G League call-up. Isn't that crazy? Huh. He was the first ever G League call-up, and that's an example of how far the league has come in that department in the last 11 years. Now there are just so many G League call-ups. That's a genuinely fun fact. I'm going to file that one away. Yeah, so Birdman was the first G League call-up. They mentioned that on the broadcast. I loved George Carl's just demeanor throughout this series. (laughs) He was, like, so even keel. Throughout every interview, throughout every close-up of him on the sideline, and maybe that also kind of seeped off onto the Nuggets roster, yes. too. Yep. Like, they definitely embodied his calmness, and just his total just image on the sideline, his classic image was him not just standing on the sideline, but posting up like leaning on the leaning. scores table. Oh yeah, just chilling. He, <laughs> and, at no point did George Carl think that they were going to lose to the Hornets. At no point. Right. And I remember Chris Marlowe and Scott Hastings always talking about how they could never actually see the game because George Carl was just leaning on the scores table right in front of them for 48 minutes. <laughs> That's awesome. 
<laughs> and that was just totally right. I'm so jealous Adam got to talk to him because that's one guy you just want to be in a room with for five minutes at least. Definitely. Yeah, it was a great podcast. Check it out. It's on the DMVR podcast feed, of course. Uh, dropped on Friday. Fascinating, fascinating conversation. Another interesting thing that George Carl said uh, was about his current relationship with the Denver Nuggets. He said, quote, I have not spoken to Josh Kroenke since. Yeah. Obviously, uh, since he got fired and let go. I would like to speak to Josh if it happens. I love the opportunity. I'm now a Denver Nuggets fan. Love I'm over it. I want them to succeed. I want them to win. And I'm going to act like a fan. I might be too opinionated, but I was told I was too opinionated for 20 years of coaching in the NBA. George Carl would get a huge ovation if the Nuggets brought him back to the Pepsi Center. Standing O, like probably a full 60-second applause. Do you think so? Even after the book and everything that's happened since, do you think it's still adoration and appreciation? I think he would. I think enough time has passed. And... When George Carl was fired, it, you know, it, it might have been the right move at the time. It really might have been. I, I, I think you can definitely build a case that Denver needed to go in a new direction. Uh, that direction obviously wasn't Brian Shaw. But, <laughs> oh, you think? But you can still say that Denver needed to go in a new direction. Um, but when he was fired, that was an absolute knife into the heart of the fan base. And I do believe that a big reason why it took Denver – so long to get his attendance back into the top half of the league and while and a big reason why interest faded around this team in this city uh, for so long was the fact that a lot of fans were so turned off by that decision to part with George to part ways with George right. Carl this was is this would you say the golden era of nuggets basketball at the time and and how easily the Crockies let that go and Look, the way they did it, we kind of know just general practice in the NBA. That's a no-no. Like, that's going to piss a coach off. That's going to sour a relationship. And so for whatever, however opinionated and, and loose Carl may be in, in certain contexts, he's absolutely justified in any sort of bitterness or anger. But that said, it's awesome to hear he's over it. And I, I loved that quote about being a fan. And so that's, that's the perspective I'm going to, like, when he tweets about, oh, they need a point guard. Hey, that's just a really informed fan and basketball lifer. Not necessarily a guy posturing up saying, hey, I know better. I could have done better. He's just going to opine with the rest of us, and I think that's fun. Yeah, but I think enough time has passed. And, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. We could close with this. He did expand on his thoughts about the Nuggets needing, quote, a true point guard. And what George Carl thinks is that Denver would be better with, say, a Chris Paul type at the point. Yep. But he also made it a point to say that he thought a Chris Paul-Jamal Murray backcourt right. yep. would work. It's you know, this not, wasn't a Chris yeah. Paul for Murray swap. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's, like, with a lot of those those Murray criticisms, it's like having a traditional point guard because of what that does when you have a player like Nikola Jokic is so important. But that doesn't mean there's no place for Murray or Murray can't be on this team or you would want to walk away from that scoring potential. And so de defensively, it would be interesting. Um, you know, that's not a lot of size with Murray at the two, but but with Chris Paul in charge of the offense, Jokic doing the lion's share, um, you know, with, in, terms of, in terms of making plays and then Murray just kind of being a hot hand, 
that's an unstoppable offense if everything's clicking. So I like where his head's at. Yeah, you got anything else from this game and this series? I think I have burned through my notebook. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> the Nuggets fans, you and I, Adam, we're done with the first round. Uh, not, there's only so much you can say, but but just awesome to watch a Nuggets team that's a favorite play like a favorite, and I'm looking forward to round two. For sure. I am as well. Hey, keep sending us in questions, guys. If you're a DNVR member, go to this podcast and leave a message comment question take in the comment section we'll get to it on tuesday's show talk to you guys then Hey guys, before we get out of here, Denver Rubber Company is the most reliable local partner for your long-term projects. They've been doing it since 1972, providing the highest quality products from custom die-cut gaskets to molded rubber to custom contract manufacturing, custom hoses. Of course, we've still got snow here in Denver and Colorado. Denver Rubber Company is your one-stop shop for anything that has to do with snow plows. Their blades can be cut to any length and slotted to meet your exact specifications. Check them out today online, drcfirst.com backslash DNVR or at 1-800-259-0010. Of course, tell them who sent you.